0: Our Bible passage this morning, which you can find now, is 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 2 to 16. You can find this in the church Bibles on page 1163. Page 1163, it's Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, and we're looking at chapter 7, starting at verse 2 and reading through to the end of that chapter page 1163. And Paul, this is part of what Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. We break into it at verse 2. And he says to them, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you, I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside fears within but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but also by the comfort you had given him he told us about your longing for me your deep sorrow your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever even if I caused you sorrow by my letter I do not regret it Though I did regret it I see that my letter hurt you but only for a little while yet now I am happy not because you were made sorry sorrow sorry not because you were made sorry but because your sorrow led you to repentance for you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us godly sorrow brings repentance That leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death see what this godly sorrow has produced in you what earnestness what eagerness to clear yourselves what indignation what alarm what longing what concern what readiness to see justice done at every point You have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So, even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged." In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you.
1: Thank you, David, for bringing us that reading. Um, You may notice that Chris Webb is not here this morning, ready to deliver the message. Um, unfortunately, he is unwell, um, so the message has been pre-recorded on the screen. Um, there are a number of the, the staff team unwell with COVID at the moment, um, Ros and David Briggs as well. Um, so I do just want to spend a moment just to pray for them briefly. Um, Anne Webb has been in touch just to say a big thank you to the church family for support of them at this time, particularly with Chris and Isaac being unwell. Um, so I'd just like to, before we hear that message, just commit them to you father god we do want to lift up the webb family to you in particular at this time we do pray that you would move rapidly to bring chris and isaac back to full health and full strength lord we thank you that we can show our love to them um, at this time and we do pray that they would be staying close to you strengthen other members of the family as they carry more and we do pray that even through illness, they would worship and know your love and blessings upon them. Amen. Thank you.
2: Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so sorry that I can't be with you. Um, it is a poor substitute and it harkens back to the bad old days of COVID and recordings and so on. Um, I've had COVID this week. It's not me for six, um, but I feel well enough to, to record this now. Um, So we're looking at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 16, uh, under the title of Godly and Worldly Sorrow. Now, it's pretty unfashionable to say this, but um, writers by the name of Bill and Pam Farrell have forwarded the theory that men's brains are like waffles, whereas women's brains are like spaghetti. Uh, Men tend to have a box for every thought and they can switch between the boxes whereas for women every thought is linked like a long spaghetti. However, uh, men don't need to be in any box at a particular time. Um, So a man might be in his chair and his wife uh, might say to him because he's, he's looking very thoughtful, What are you thinking about dear? And it's at that precise point that he's thinking about absolutely nothing at all. Now, um, don't let these uh, stereotypes uh, uh, sort of deceive you or trouble you. I think my brain is, is like a sieve. Um, and for Paul, he had more of a spaghetti-type uh, brain. Uh, we can see that in this letter, uh, the, the verse that we're looking at, first of all, is verse 2 in chapter 7. Make room for us in your hearts. And that is a spaghetti theme that he's had right through this letter. In chapter 6, verse 13, he said the same thing. Open wide your hearts to us. And in chapter 2 also, and he's returning to an explanation in chapter 7 that he he was talking about in chapter 2, as we'll see. He's picking up a strand of spaghetti from chapter 2. The context is this. Some kind of wrongdoing had gone on unchecked in Corinth. Uh, There was all kinds of um, sexual sin going on, but it seems that there was also slander of the Apostle Paul. Um, A big group in the church of Corinth had turned away from Paul, uh, turned to other teachers, had sort of felt that, that Paul was a devious little man. Um, and Paul had to write a sharp letter of rebuke. Now, you might be sitting at church this morning thinking, why should I be bothered about some obscure tiff between the Apostle Paul and this church in Corinth 2,000 years ago? Well, I I, I think from this passage, two things have, have really stood out to me, and I hope will speak to you. And we'll look at these two things under the two headings of When Others Mess Up, verses 2 to 9, and then when we have messed up, verses 10 to 16, looking most of all at verses 10 to 11 there. Uh, When others have messed up, first of all, 2 to 9, it was an odd friendship, this, between Paul and the church at Corinth. There seems to be one big problem in every single chapter that he writes in both letters, In verse 2, we see Paul probably addressing again some of the slander uh, that he was facing and had faced uh, within the Corinthian church. So he says in in verse 2, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. It's precisely those things they were accusing him of, wronging, corrupting, exploiting. Um, So he's defending himself. Some seem to have claimed that Paul was a dubious, bad teacher who exploited people and and sometimes was out of his mind. In response, Paul does two things. Uh, He challenges and he loves. We can see his love in verse 3. He says, I've said that uh, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. We would live or die with you. Uh, He loved them so much. And then in verse 4, he says, we've got great confidence in you. Uh, I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged by you. And he uses that word polis, polis, great. Uh, He was uh, filled with with love and pride uh, for them. He really, really loved them. And he loved them so much that he wrote this sharp letter of rebuke We don't have it, it's lost. Historians haven't found that letter. Um, But clearly Paul wrote a letter that was pretty sharp in rebuke. Uh, It wasn't a letter of retaliation. He wrote it out of love, really hoping that they would repent and come closer to him. And as we'll see, it seems to have worked. Paul was like a dad to this church. Um, Now you parents, um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you've had to discipline your children, you've told them off, you've disciplined them, and then you're like, oh no, um, did I overreact? Or you teachers, have you had this experience, you've disciplined a student, and then you've thought to yourself, oh no, did I go too far? Um, did, I, did I punish them too much? How are they going to react to this? Um, and Paul is uh, experiencing this now, we see that in verse 5. He says, when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Conflicts on the outside were people rejecting the gospel and, um, you know, he, he received lots of hardship in his ministry. But the fears on the inside are Paul biting his nails thinking, oh, how have the Corinthians taken my letter? And he wasn't able to go there, so he sent Titus to, um, to bring back a report about how the, how the Corinthians had taken the letter. And then in verse six, he says, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus had finally shown up, and Titus brought a good report. Um, And so now we come back to the spaghetti uh, that um, the strand goes back to, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Paul had been in Troas. Hopefully there's a map uh, on the screen. And um, Paul had been given an open door, he says in the second chapter, to preach in Troas, this beautiful town on the sea where it seemed like, oh, people were, were willing to hear Paul and allow him to share the gospel with them. But because Titus wasn't there at that time, he hadn't met the the rendezvous point, Paul was biting his nails. He had no peace. He's so emotionally churned up. He had an open door there, but he just, he couldn't share the gospel. He was kind of paralyzed spiritually. What was the kryptonite that stopped Paul sharing the gospel? It was his love for this church in Corinth. Paul was no machine. He was a very emotional person, not a waffle brain at all. Um, His love for the Corinthians put years on him. Now, how about you uh, folks this morning? Um, How do you react when um, someone has sinned against you or messed up uh, like the Corinthians have done? We can often veer to one extreme or the other. Out of supposed love, we might just try to ignore the the issue completely. And sometimes it is right to overlook uh, an offence. The the Proverbs tell us that. But um, sometimes we can allow something to gnaw at us and we hedgehog away. um, We don't challenge. We don't do anything. We hate conflict. We just want to... chew it over in our minds, and and that's not right. Um, Other temperaments, on the other hand, seem to relish conflict. You're engaged in it continually. Um, You're always writing challenging emails. You like to be provocative. You seem a bit grumpy. Maybe you have a blind spot that you don't realize that the, the words that you say, that are quite sharp sometimes, do have an emotional effect on on other people and perhaps you're you're blind to that Paul wasn't Uh, he he exemplifies balanced gospel love gospel love is committed to the extent that it will challenge um, but in this challenge there's an awareness of how uh, sharp words can sometimes cut gospel love is desperate to reconcile not to retaliate and the love of Paul did seem to win people over here. Titus brought back a very positive report and it made Paul so happy. And um, You can see how happy he feels. Verse 8, he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I, I don't regret it. I did regret it for a time, but, but now I'm, I'm so happy, verse 9. And not because you're sorry, but because that sorrow led you to repentance And then in verse 13, you can see how happy he is. He says, I'm greatly encouraged. Uh, I think the English translations are um, typically reserved there. He uses the word parakaleo, which is the same word used when they were encouraged when a young man called Tychicus was raised from the dead. There's a sense not just of encouragement, but of relief and comfort and jubilant joy. Uh, Paul was so happy with Titus's report. Now, how about when we've messed up? Uh, verses 10 to 16, but particularly verses 10 and 11. I find this a really interesting verse here. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Cool. Quite a contrast there, isn't there? Worldly sorrow, what's that? this is talking about guilt. Often with guilt come physical symptoms. Uh, Psalmist David says in Psalm 32, when I I kept silent, when I didn't confess my sins and when I stored up my guilt, my bones wasted away. Uh, It had a real physiological effect on me. Guilt also brings an obsession sometimes you can't stop thinking about what you did and all great writers and all great thinkers have a lot to say about guilt you try and get guilt out of your head and then you're walking along and then suddenly something triggers it again there's a tightness in the chest a constriction in the throat not covid it's it's guilt you change your environment but guilt's still there. I don't know how many of you have read the great novel Crime and Punishment by uh, Dostoevsky. Well, I have to admit, I um, read about three-quarters of it. It was hard work. It's, you know, it's a great novel. Um, I didn't finish it. It's about this, it's about this man called Vros who is very like a modern man in a way. He, he says morality and guilt That's a load of bourgeois crap. That's rubbish. I can decide what's right and wrong. And so to test that theory, he sees an elderly lady who's a miserly Scrooge. She's a recluse and she's made everyone's life a misery. And he goes in and he kills her. And he is stained. He gets away with it. He covers his tracks. He does so well. The police are never going to find him, but the guilt eats him up so much that he has to confess anyway. And Dostoevsky says that he received such a joy that it was as if he hadn't lived until then. And might be thinking, Chris, why are you giving this weird illustration? Well, guilt is inevitable for us human beings. We can't live without guilt. And worldly sorrow is dealing with guilt in our way, not God's way. And it can often result in depression, ill health, mental breakdown. A few years ago, a long time ago actually, I read a a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. And the sermon was called, I have sinned. And it was all about these people Uh, throughout the Bible who said, I've sinned and they weren't genuine. It was worldly remorse not godly sorrow. There was Pharaoh. I've sinned, he said. um, But he wasn't really repentant. There was Balaam. There was King Saul. There was Achan. And there was Judas. And in each case it was worldly sorrow that led to death. Now, here are are seven ways that we can deal with our guilt in a worldly way that will cause us damage. Number one, blame shift. I'm sorry, but, you know, it wasn't actually my fault. You know, uh, I'm sorry, but it wasn't... I I haven't actually done done anything wrong. Uh, Number two, define it away. Uh, I'm sorry, but... um, But actually, I did act with integrity, um, defining it away. Number three, deadening yourself, medicating, getting drunk, going shopping, binge watching, trying to deaden yourself to the guilt, medicating it away. Number four, criticising others, getting cynical. Everybody else is a crook. That that makes us feel better. Why do we like to gossip? Well, we're dealing with our own guilt, perhaps without knowing it sometimes. Number five, trying to achieve. Being a perfectionist, trying to cover our guilt through performance, drivenness, perfectionism. Number six, linked to that, maybe we'll give incredibly generously because we're trying to uh, cover guilt. Uh, Someone on their third wife, is giving extremely generously, a philanthropist, is covering his own guilt. Number seven, over-penitence, self-flagellation. In the Middle Ages, there were these flagellants who would go around the streets beating themselves. Oh, I feel terrible, I'm gonna make myself miserable, I hate myself, that doesn't work either. Worldly sorrow. How about godly sorrow? The Bible teaches us that if we uncover our sin in the presence of God, he will cover it. God will cover it through Jesus Christ. He will give us clothes of his righteousness. But we hate transparency. This is what the story of Adam and Eve is all about, that Adam and Eve, they initially were naked and they felt no shame. And then they rebelled and then they tried to cover themselves. They hated the the scrutiny and the transparency. But, you know, that story teaches us that it's as if God is saying, if you try to cover yourself, you'll be exposed. But if you uncover yourself and let me cover you, then uh, you will be clothed with my righteousness. If you expose yourself, I will cover you. If you cover yourself, I will expose you. So uncover yourself to me, says God, and I will make you beautiful because my son Jesus has lived that life for you and you can be covered with his righteousness. That's what the gospel is all about. The covering that God gives us is not a cover-up. He sends our guilt and shame to Jesus Christ and he bears it. Jesus took our nakedness, literally, on the cross and he clothes us. So how do we express godly sorrow? Let's have a look at the passage again. I want you to look at verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, earnestness to clear yourself, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness to see justice done. Be honest. The Corinthians were now not covering up. They were transparent. We've done wrong. We repent. We're sorry. We turn. Be honest. And then verse 15 be humble. The Corinthians, as we know, had a tendency to be proud and puffed up, um, but when they received Titus, we read here that they received him with fear and trembling. In other words, they were humble and they expressed true repentance and godly sorrow that leads to salvation. And so Paul rejoices. That's what this passage is all about. And now, he can move on to the delicate subject of giving, which we'll look at next week. So how about you? What's shaping your life? Worldly sorrow or godly sorrow? Covering up or knowing that Jesus Christ is your hiding place and being covered by his righteousness? Today, we've looked at when others mess up. What do we do? When it's appropriate, we challenge but we do so with love, not out of retaliation, but with a desire for reconciliation. And when we mess up and cover it in the presence of God so that God can cover it, be honest and be humble. To do that, perhaps you can use one of the seven penitential Psalms, Psalm 6, Psalm 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, or 143, but may we all know godly repentance that leads to salvation. Thank you for listening this morning.